To move forward, we have to get our facts straight. Guest host Baska Sankara of Jacobin Magazine hosts a conversation with his writers about what happened last November and what we can learn from it. All that and some footage from the Women's March from the Diverse Filmmakers Alliance. You're watching The Laura Flanders Show, where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. Hi, I'm Bhaskar Sankara. I'm the editor of Jacobin Magazine. I'm here with Jonah Birch, who's a contributing editor at Jacobin and a graduate student in sociology at New York University. I'm also here with Kate Aronoff, who's the co-host of the Descent podcast, Hot and Bothered, as well as a writing fellow at Indies Times. I guess there's a lot of um, uh, media narratives that are focusing on how Trump's a completely new and, and phenomenon, where he kind of just emerged out of a vacuum. It went straight from reality TV sets to, um, to the White House. But um, to what extent is he, is there a continuity between Trump and the Tea Party, between Trump and just the conservative movement, you know, generally? Like, how, how, do you, um, how do you see it? Right. So there's a lot of bad narratives about how Trump came about. The sort of one you mentioned is that he came out of nowhere, right, and, and was just this sort of reality TV star and was preying on people's sort of worst impulses. Uh, but I think where he really came from is in the sort of priming that the GOP has been doing for years and years and years, most sort of acutely uh, with the Tea Party. And so uh, the base of the Tea Party looks very similar to Trump's base. It's a lot of uh, middle class, white folks, uh, and, and there was real organizing in the Tea Party in a way that I think gets a little bit ignored when we're talking about the narrative of, of Trump, uh, which is that the Tea Party, uh, you know, had grassroots organizers, had uh, this real sort of uh, organic presence uh, in many parts of the country, and, and this real sort of genuine energy, which of course was sort of uh, bolstered by folks like the Koch brothers, by these sort of big... Uh, big think tanks and, and uh, organizations truly moved into place uh, when the Tea Party momentum sort of started taking off. And of course, as we've seen in the last couple of days, uh, you know, Donald Trump's cabinet, uh, all of his sort of policy agendas um, have been, uh, you know, taken out of these, these playbooks. So he's not really, there are things that are genuinely new about Trump, and, and maybe we can talk about that later. Um, but a lot of it is very standard, even down to his sort of economic plan, is, is things that the, the Republican Party has been doing for a very long time. There has been over the past two years this, this kind of divide between, you know, the Tea Party inspired wing, as well as a traditional Chamber of Commerce style business wing. And I guess that's best represented by people like Paul Ryan in Congress that are already butting heads on certain issues with, with uh, Donald Trump. How deep are these fissures in the Republican Party? Do you think um, these, are, these are just kind of things that we paper it over? Will one wing you know, win? Is there a possibility that the Steve Bannon wing of the Republican Party is really going to be in the driver's seat? Well, I, I think the short answer to that is no. I, I don't think that there's a, a, a possibility that... Um, I mean, it's, it's not just about the Republican Party, right? What we're asking is whether the American ruling class and political establishment is going to lose power, essentially, uh, in this context. And, and, and I don't think that's the case. Clearly, this is a moment of crisis and, and um, you know, and, and that mainstream Republicans and, and really uh, the entire the entire American elite, uh, the election of Donald Trump was not something uh, that they were expecting or, or, or wanted to see, see happen. And, and clearly, you know, you definitely see these splits developing uh, uh, within the Republican Party between, on the one hand, the kind of the, the dominant business wing that really, I think, controls the party, 
and, and, and sections of its base. And, and what Kate was talking about in terms of small business owners, uh, white suburban middle class professionals, I think you saw in, in the government shutdown of, was it the fall of 2013? I mean, that was something that business uh, really, really did not want. Um, you know, and in the course of the primary in this election, uh, they, there was a, a degree of disorganization, obviously, uh, that meant that even though Trump was not their preferred candidate, um, they, 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 didn't get, they didn't get what they want. Um, still, nonetheless, I think it, to the extent that he is empowering um, um, people who are beyond the pale of mainstream politics, there are going to be uh, lots of constraints, uh, st structural constraints, institutional constraints that are going to limit uh, how far they're going to be able to diverge from the consensus in American politics. But, you know, we, we often talk about these fissures in the Republican Party, but it did seem, at least in the last election, that there wasn't the anticipated defections over from the Republican side to the Democratic side that Hillary Clinton and others were, were banking on. Um, so I think a lot of people thought that, you know, suburban uh, women especially, uh, lots of other Repu traditionally Republican constituencies would swing in great enough uh, numbers over to Clinton that the election would be, you know, kind of a, a, a cakewalk. Um, so do you, like, how do you explain Clinton's like loss? Not among just these, these constituencies, <laughs> but just in general. You know, we have lots of time. But, but you know, I, I think initially, right after the election, there was a lot of emphasis on, um, okay, Clinton did campaign enough in the Rust Belt, and she was a pretty mm -hmm. bad campaigner. She didn't go to those states, and the Democrats didn't have a narrative around class or around speaking to people's concerns. But then lately, there's been all these other factors added in. There's been a lot of talk about um, Russian interference at the election and the hacking of the DNC and whatnot. So how, how do you weight, in your mind, all these different kind of factors and, and which, which narrative is, is right? Is it contingent factors, like her campaigning ability and the Russians? Is, is there something deeper and more underlying? Uh, definitely something deeper and more underlying. I think, especially recently, there's been this kind of move by uh, higher-ups in the Democratic Party to blame what happened in the election on these outside factors, on, uh, on Russian interference, on these hacks. Uh, and, and did that have an effect? Probably. I, I don't know. I mean, I think we'll see as these investigations move forward how big of an impact that actually had. Um, but either way, whatever, whatever those, those investigations show, there are structural factors in the Democratic Party which made Hillary Clinton lose an election. Uh, and it's not sort of just a fault of her campaign. It's that uh, the Democratic Party's strategy for the last couple of years, the way they've run campaigns, is to target as few people as possible. Uh, and, and some of the most kind of damning uh, articles that came out in, in the days after the election, sort of trying to make sense of this, uh, are about, you know, these algorithms that the campaign used to, to you know, say we don't have to go to Pennsylvania uh, because our, our algorithm says that, you know, we had that uh, short up. It was, uh, they lost Pennsylvania by 60,000 votes. Uh, it's that they shouldn't have gone there um, was just a clear oversight that they didn't go uh, to these places where Trump won so strongly. Uh, was was really just a flaw on the part of you know both the Clinton campaign and the kind of operating logic of the Dem Democratic Party establishment, uh, which says you know you can go after these very strategic constituencies, you can go after um, a you know specific 
demographic uh, and really ignore everything else. And I think we saw this in the campaign, which is that Trump was telling a pretty compelling story about what America should look like, right? As, as bigoted, as racist, as xenophobic as that was, he wove together this narrative uh, about what America should look like that really spoke to a lot of people and spoke to a lot of people, you know, not maybe because they're, they're sort of in their heart of hearts racist, so those people did vote for Trump, uh, but, but because, you know, they're, they're sick of the way politics has worked and people hate politics. Trump doesn't look like a politician and so cast against Hillary Clinton, who's this sort of embodiment uh, of, of establishment politics on, on, you know, both sides of the aisle, uh, it, it was really easy for him to just sort of trounce her. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 24, uh, Hillary Clinton has been on my TV screen for as long as I can remember. And so the fact that, you know, uh, people wanted to vote against that is, is not surprising, I don't think. Yeah, and you know, I think th there's a narrative that's emerged, obviously, that um, the, the, the election was, was thrown to, to Trump by um, essentially poor working class white people in the, these suburban areas. And I, I know Jacobin published a very good piece by Kim Moody that goes through some of the numbers about exactly who was, who was voting for, for, for Trump. And um, I, I do think it's, you know, there was obviously a lot of uh, disillusionment. Dis, uh, people were not satisfied with uh, Hillary Clinton or with, uh, lots of people with either of the candidates in this campaign. It's important to say that, um, you know, that first of all, most poor working class people in this country don't vote, uh, you know, and, uh, or, or a huge number don't. Um, and that the base of, of the Trump campaign really is these small business owners and the sort of white suburban professionals and 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 uh, uh, that that his uh, his electorate was drawn um, disproportionately from higher income uh, groups and I think that's an important thing to uh, to get across because I think there can be this very elitist um, you know it's these these poor uneducated people who they're just they're so irrational they're so crazy uh, and that's a dangerous message certainly for anyone who's interested in in progressive politics You're listening to The Laura Flanders Show with guest host Bhaskar Sankara and Jacobin Magazine. Stay tuned. And to find out more about Jacobin or this program, go to lauraflanders.com. Thanks. Uh, so I guess it does come down to, like Jenna was saying, that it comes down to turnout for the Democrats who weren't able to rally and actually like convince people to affirmatively vote for them, you know, even if those those voters were rightly repulsed by 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 Trump and obviously you know if if you know things haven't been going very well for you voting for someone whose main uh, claim to fame is you know I've been in politics for 30 years uh, you know it doesn't make you know complete sense but but you know that falls like what's our solution is it just a matter of is it a matter of like reframing or pushing the Democrats in more the direction of like a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, is it, is it something else? I think at this point, I mean, given the sort of realities of what a Trump regime will look like, uh, it, it's sort of an all of the above strategy. I think there, there's, you know, real need to support, um, you know, things like changes in the Democratic Party leadership to support progressive candidates. Um, but I think there's also an argument for uh, building institutions outside of that um, and really figuring out what it is that's going to get people excited, what's going to get people engaged um, in politics, whether we frame it like that or not. But uh, I think we really need to sort of double back down on the power of social movements. It's kind of the nice, one of the nice things about being outside of the election is that we can kind of refocus on the things that um, actually do make structural changes in America, which 
are not always sort of party politics. Um, and so, you know, looking to um, what's happening outside, looking to building outsider pressure, while also, you know, holding the fact that we can sort of contest for these super local races like the Tea Party did um, in, you know, the lead up to the Republicans taking back so much power, both at the, at the federal level and at the state level. And if I could just say, you know, I think that there is a, a part of the problem in American politics is that uh, there, the, if you are progressive or if, or if you're on the left, really the uh, the electoral politics around the Democratic Party has is it, it seems like it's pretty much the only thing that's been on offer for a long time. So of course, there are movements that go up and down, but um, the institutions and the organizations of the left in this country have been so weak over the last you know four decades, in some ways even longer. Um, that it's really limited our ability to have a, 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 an impact at, a, at the level of policy, at the level of, uh, of the institutions of, of American capitalism. Um, and, and that's something, you know, I think that there's an opportunity to start to, to build something to the left right now. I mean, I, I, ironic as it is, um, I mean, one thing that the, uh, the election of Trump is, is, has done is certainly it's galvanized a, a, a layer of people who are really... Um, you know, uh, disillusioned with the direction of politics. A lot of people who were um, maybe inspired by the Bernie Sanders campaign, or people are looking for something. I also think that there's a degree to which, you know, it's opened up some splits within within mainstream American politics, and that potentially can open open up space for something. Con- concretely, is there a, a historical analogy or something you look to for, you know, inspiration or for an example of how kind of movements can can develop in in these these times, I mean, so we could think about, I guess, the the um, anti-war movement that emerged, but all these movements seem to, in the end, go back to let's just elect some Democrats at the the midterm, which again might be better than having Republicans elected at the midterm, but 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 again, they kind of like seem to ebb and flow and don't don't develop a a deeper root in American uh, society. Right. I think one of one of my favorite examples to look to, and it's tough because a lot of these these you know huge movements which have driven these big egalitarian uh, shifts in American policy uh, have have been under Democratic administrations. Um, but one that actually you know I think one of the the ones that's look worth looking to um, is the Bonus Army March uh, in in the aftermath of the Great uh, Great Depression, uh, where I think ten thousand or twenty thousand uh, unemployed veterans just picked up moved to Anacostia Flats in, in Washington, D.C., uh, and, and for two weeks straight lobbied Hoover uh, to pass a, a bill that would sort of um, give, uh, give uh, pay to, to veterans um, that they were promised. And, you know, they were out of work, and so we're looking for this. So the demand itself, um, you know, it gets a little bit lost uh, in, in what that was, but uh, I think they... they kicked Hoover out of office, basically. Um, the, they came back uh, at some point later, and Eleanor Roosevelt uh, brought them tea uh, when, when the bonus RB came back for a sort of second push. Um, and so, you know, that was, well, was 10,000 people, and, and, you know, that kind of pressure kept up. In, in the aftermath of, of the Depression, uh, to the point where, you know, you can talk about the sort of limits of the New Deal. There are plenty of limits of the New Deal. Um, but it did save a lot of people's lives. Uh, and, and it did, you know, I think change the way we can think about, you know, what's possible um, when, when movements kind of push. And, and today, I think it's easy to forget um, that the left is actually stronger than it's been in a very long time in, in the U.S. Let's not forget that 12 million people voted for an avowed socialist in the primaries uh, and that we've seen over the past five years this huge resurgence in social movement activity. 
from uh, Occupy Wall Street to the movement for, for black lives to the uh, ongoing sort of uh, fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, people are paying attention to movements in a way that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. And so I think it's, it's really easy in this moment, especially for those of us on the kind of progressive left end of the spectrum to forget that, um, but to really pick up, pick up that mantle and say, look, we, we you know, have avenues available to us, which we haven't had before. That's an opportunity for the left, especially when, you know, as we were talking about, there's this huge power vacuum in the Democratic Party. You're listening to The Laura Flanders Show with guest host Bhaskar Sankara and Jacobin Magazine. Stay tuned, and to find out more about Jacobin or this program, go to lauraflanders.com. Thanks. So Kate mentioned the, the New Deal period, but one thing that period had that we don't have today is some sort of like real insurgency within the labor movement and the really birth of that, that movement. Do you, do you see anything positive coming out of that in that direction? And, and it looks like uh, with Trump um, and the Supreme Court nomination, it looks like we might see the devastation of public sector unionism. Is, is there a possibility that there might be some silver lining out of this as far as new organizing models, a new, new anything? Um, we could do an entire show on that. <laughs> you know, that, that is a big question. I, I, think, um, I think it's worth saying that things, things don't look, look good in, in that department. And, um, you know, and that there has been a long-term weakening of organized labor in this country. Uh, and, and uh, you know, over the last four decades, I do think, you know, and uh, other people, Kate probably knows more about this than I do, um, that there's, there's some effort to develop a kind of progressive labor uh, politics right now. And, um, you know, and even in the last five, six years, we've seen some things that I think are, are um, you know, are, are positive signs. The Chicago Teachers Union strike obviously was something that was um, very inspiring for a lot of people. I think the, the larger problem, you know, we've seen over the last decade and a half, there have been some big protest movements at times. I mean, the movement against the Iraq war was enormous. The organizing around immigrant rights, um, Part of the issue with those movements is, uh, you know, that as I've experienced them, is they they tended to go up really quickly and then collapse really quickly without leaving a lot of organizational uh, ex or expressions in their in their wake. Um, you know, and that's something that we have to figure out how to how to overcome. You know, on the left, I mean, we have to figure out how to build something that that's durable. One thing that's worth mentioning too is a lot of the the people I was talking to right before the election, when the sort of assumption for a lot of people was that Clinton would be elected, um, movements were kind of making this turn toward thinking about what independent political power looks like. Um, there was a sort of you know there weren't any illusions about what a Clinton presidency would be uh, on, on the left, and so even before you know before the election itself, um, people are starting to think about you know what does it look like for movements to run their own candidates? What does it look like you know potentially even to have our own party or something like that? So so that question has been raised a lot, and I think there is sort of a recognition, especially a, among a kind of new generation of activists, to, to think about, you know, how do we solidify these gains? How do we make sure, sure. Uh, when there aren't, you know, all these people in the streets that we can, um, you know, be in the halls of power, as it were? It's hard to find young anarchists anymore, which, which <laughs> as, as, you know, a, a right we're moving social democrat, I think is fantastic. But, it's not 1998 know. anymore. Right, right. It's not 1998 anymore. All the urban gardens, Sanders has conquered them all. So, yeah. But I, I guess what, what um, you know, what is there to be optimistic about the next, um, you know, year or two? Or, or maybe a better, a more materialist way to put it is, 
where are the promising things that we could double down on um, that you see kind of existing now or potentially emerging in the next uh, year or two? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to, to spin this as sort of a positive, but this power vacuum in the Democratic Party is sort of exciting. Um, and the fact that there are so many people, as I said, polarized against, against Donald Trump, um, who could, you know, be, I think, galvanized to, to you know, fill that in. Uh, campaigns like uh, Keith Ellison's for, for Democratic leadership, I think, are, are one thing to be excited about. Um, but more so, I think just we have a lot of people who are angry and like want to do something. And so the left historically has not been good at providing those people on ramps. Um, but I think there is this real desire now um, to get those people plugged in, both to um, to sort of movement politics more generally, but also to more formal politics. I think there's a lot of people looking at the Tea Party model, looking at the sort of grassroots insurgency, um, which can happen of, of running for school boards, running for city councils and things like that. Um, and I think the, the real hope, I, I think, in the next couple of years is going to be um, at places like the municipal level and at the state level um, where you don't have kind of the same constraints you do at the federal level. I mean, I think the federal level, there's going to be a lot of defensive fights, um, especially on things like the environment, uh, to, to just, you know, save basic institutions that uh, could, you know, potentially stop the end of the world, and that's not an overstatement. Um, but to, to, you know, look to, to what can happen uh, in, in cities. And, and, you know, we've seen in Europe, there's been a sort of municipalist movement um, that, you know, we can take some lessons from, we should leave others. Um, but uh, there are kind of, you know, things like energy municipalization, taking back public power, uh, things like, you know, creating uh, sanctuary cities, creating, you know, places where, uh, you know, the, the city government actually goes against the federal government uh, and refuses to persecute immigrants in the way that Trump is calling for. Jonah and Kate, thank you so much for uh, for talking with me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. The day after the inauguration of Donald Trump, a lot of people didn't just wonder what to do next. They got up and got into the streets. The Diverse Filmmakers Alliance captured these participants in women's marches in New York and Washington, D.C., and asked the participants in the marches, what do they do next? We didn't want this. This was not the will of the people. The people that made this happen no, are not the majority in America. We are a much better people than the person who happened to get elected. He does not represent the populace. So, the rest of the world, they say he doesn't represent what we want in our future. This is the real America. This is what's really happening. Like, showing, you know, these feelings, getting them out, that maybe we can come together. This whole presidency has just brought out the hate in this country, and this is the perfect time for everyone to stand together and love and be kind and unite so we can have a better country. For minorities, for women, you know, LGBT community, there's a lot of people out here today, clearly. So there's a lot of people that have our backs. We are not going to wait four more years. We are going to fight, fight, fight. Because silence equals death. And I'm not going to let him destroy everything I believe America is about. I hope the people don't use uh, their fire and their passion. It's 
very easy to sort of be with a movement when it's uh, when emotions are heightened like this, but it's the long game that's important here. It's about every single day being educated, being engaged in your community. Going out, getting engaged locally, finding organizations to join with. Art making, organizing, and getting down with your local community. Personally, I'm planning to start being part of the community board in my city. Out of Bushwick, Brooklyn, we've already formed a health coalition working for bills and laws. I work now as an educator, so I'm working with a few of my coworkers to create this group after school that works towards social justice. I do believe that people, women, have the power within to make the change that will really matter and that will be lasting. We're not going to sit back. This is a stand that we're taking. Complacency is no longer an option. For more information about the Diverse Filmmakers Alliance or Jacobin Magazine or the other activities we cover on this show, come to our website, lauraflanders.com, and support this programming. We only get by with your help, so thanks. <laughs>